Your top stories on Africa rise and shine this hour. The AU urges the ICC to suspend cases against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. French President Francois Hollande begins his state visit to South Africa. In economics, Libya's oil output increases to 700 barrels a day. And in sport, South African national cricket team take on Pakistan today. But first, here's Usani Makubele with the news. Thanks, good morning. South African President Jacob Zuma has defended the African Union's decision that no sitting African head of state should appear before the International Criminal Court. African leaders meeting in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa over the weekend agreed to request the UN-backed court to grant African leaders immunity from prosecution while they are in office. In a resolution, AU leaders asked the UN Security Council to urge the ICC to defer the case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy, William Rutum. Zuma explains the AU's position. Sitting heads of state should not be prosecuted. It does not mean they will never be prosecuted. They could be prosecuted at the end of uh, their term, whatever. In fact, there was one country that gave an example, I think Zimbabwe in particular, We said their president was prosecuted after he finished his term. If a serving head of state has a case to face, that should be deferred so that they finish their term. It does not mean the case is not heard, but it's just a question of delay. That is the process that is happening in other countries. Why can it not happen universally? The family of deposed Islamist President Mohamed Morsi says he will not enter any negotiations or accept any compromises following a crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood by military-backed authorities. Morsi, Egypt's first freely elected president, was ousted by the military in July following mass protests against his rule. Authorities have since launched a crackdown on his Muslim Brotherhood, killing hundreds at protest camps and marches and arresting about 2,000 Islamist activists and group members. Mose has been held in a secret location since his overthrow and has not been seen since his, de- his detention. Mose is due to face trial on November the 4th on charges of inciting violence. Meanwhile, Egyptian security forces are on high alert on the Swiss Canal, an important international shipping way following threats from Al-Qaeda. This comes as the war with militants in the Sinai moves closer to the Egyptian mainland and its capital, Cairo. Mel Frigbeck reports. The Egyptian authorities have increased security on the Suez Canal during the weekend following information about jihadist intentions to carry out an attack in the area. The Egyptians have deployed military and police forces in the canal and are making use of military helicopters in the area. Security sources said that these measures were taken after statements made by al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahri calling for attacks against the Egyptian army. French President François Hollande arrives in South Africa today for a two-day state visit in which he is set to push for greater cooperation on African crisis. Economic ties will also dominate talks between Hollande and President Jacob Zuma. South Africa and France are due to sign accords, including one on developing South Africa's nuclear power. Paris will also grant South African power utility, ESCOM, a loan of more than $135 million for the construction of a solar power station and a wind farm. 
The death toll from a stampede on a bridge in India has risen to 109 today after the bodies of more Hindu pilgrims were recovered from the river below. Police say the latest information they have from the ground is that 109 people were killed and 133 were injured, while scores of victims were crushed to death on the bridge in the town of Ratangar. Others died as they jumped into the river below in a bid to escape the chaos. The tragedy occurred at the same site of another stampede in 2006 in which more than 50 pilgrims were also killed. And finally, the Organization for the, for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has won this year's Nobel Peace Prize for its extensive efforts to rid the world of such arsenals. The Norwegian Nobel Committee on Friday said the conventions and the work of the OPCW have defined the use of chemical weapons as a taboo under international law, adding recent events in Syria where chemical weapons have again been put to use have underlined the need to enhance the efforts to do our way with such weapons. Don Bob has more. The OPCW Director General Ahmed Uzumtu said in a statement that a great honor has been bestowed on me and my colleagues, but without the support of states parties, this would not have been possible. He said he accepts the honor in humility. He wanted to assure all that the award will only spur the OPCW to untiring effort, stronger commitment and greater dedication. The Director General said for over 16 years, we have done what was expected of us, but we were always inspired by the true humanitarian spirit that imbues the Chemical Weapons Convention. That's the news for now. It's back to Spumelele Zondi with Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zola. Africa Amuka Na Unai. African leaders who gathered in Addis Ababa for an African Union summit over the weekend unanimously agreed that no sitting African head of state should be obligated to stand trial at the International Criminal Court, ICC. The AU also called for a deferral on the case of Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, whose trial for crimes against humanity is scheduled for next month at the ICC in The Hague. This move by AU leaders has triggered mixed reactions in Kenya. Our Nairobi correspondent Mwaiki Konyo has more. The latest decision by heads of state and government at the AU extraordinary session in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, has been received with mixed reactions here in Nairobi. The AU resolution of the two Kenyan cases has triggered a major debate in the country and has also thrust the two Kenyan leaders in a delicate situation because the ICC is likely to issue a warrant of arrest to both President Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto if they fail to attend their trial at the Hague-based ICC. Kenya also runs the risk of diplomatic isolation and economic sanctions from the rest of the world beside the African continent. The AU heads of state have given the United Nations Security Council an ultimatum to defer the two Kenyan cases. Otherwise, the president, Huru Kenyatta, should not attend the trial. Ethiopian Premier Hele Mariam Desalang. If that is not met, what the summit decided is that President Kenyatta should not appear until the requests we have made is actually answered. And according to the AU resolution, no criminal charges should be continued against any serving African head of state and government, Hele Mariam Desalang. Accordingly, we have agreed that no charge shall be 
commenced or continued before any international court or tribunal against any serving heads of state or government or anybody acting or entitled to act in such capacity during his or her term of office. The AU decision is also meant to benefit President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan, who is an ally inductee of the ICC. However, the AU decision has generated mixed reactions here in Nairobi. There are fears that if President Uhuru Kenyatta decides to skip his trial at the ICC, there may be a possible warrant of arrest against him and may thrust his core principal William Ruto in a delicate situation. Kenya may also run the risk of diplomatic isolation from the international community. Dr. Maria Nzomo, former Kenya's High Commissioner in South Africa. If you have to go by, you know, the way the, the ICC has previously acted, especially if you just look next door, uh, the way they, they responded to Bashir's reaction to his, uh, to his own situation in a similar circumstances, they have, you know, within their mandate as at the ICC, the right to issue a warrant of arrests. And because you have defied the court, you know, under the Rome Statute, you know, you are obliged to attend the court. In the event that happens, uh, the ICC is not a political institution, although uh, of course we have said it has been politicized, but it is, you know, where the matter has reached now is within the court itself, and it is simply following its legal process. And the, the first step is to invite all those concerned to appear before the court. But in the event they do not, the next thing they do automatically is to issue warrants of arrest. And with the possibility of Kenyatta's decision to stop attending his trial at the ICC, Kenyan leaders and the general public are increasingly becoming worried of possible economic sanctions against Kenya. An Nairobi lawyer, John Wanjama. It is a possibility, naturally. Uh, the question of whether it is a probability, whether it is likely to happen, is a more interesting question. And I think it is a political issue. It is an issue that has to be resolved either by the UN Security Council, they could decide to issue sanctions under the UN Charter. It is possible that some um, member states unilaterally, like the European Union has done so in the past, issue sanctions against a country that's not cooperating. But my feeling is that uh, no one would want to rush and, and do a unilateral uh, threat of sanctions unless there is... Um, a widespread consensus of the international community and my reading of the situation of Kenya is that China and Russia at least will not back any sanctions against Kenya. But so far the Kenyatta government is strongly confident of moving through the ICC saga. According to Dr. Maria Nzomo, the Kenyatta government has received a tremendous support from the African continent. From the African point of view, I think the support we have got is overwhelming. So it, for Africa, it, we look good. We really look good that, you know, we have so much support from, you know, our fellow African countries. So our image, as far as Africa is concerned, it, it you know, remains good. How the rest of the global community interpret this is another issue altogether. And the opinion may be divided on that. President Uhuru Kenyatta is scheduled to attend his ICC trial on November 12th this year. His deputy William Ruto is already at the Hague for the second week. Facing crimes against humanity charges allegedly committed during the post-election violence in 2007. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi. The Zimbabwean government has added its weight behind the call by African leaders for a possible withdrawal from the International Criminal Court, ICC. This comes amid concern that the ICC is biased against Africans. Simon Muchachemwa has more. 
As African leaders met over the weekend for an African Union extraordinary session, the debate for a possible withdrawal from the war crimes court intensified. In Zimbabwe, Legal and Parliamentary Affairs Minister Emerson Mnangagwa urged African leaders to stand up against mistreatment and humiliation by the International Criminal Court. Mnangagwa said the selective application of the law when it comes to prosecuting African leaders as compared to their Western counterpart is a major cause for concern. Speaking ahead of the session in Harare, Mnangagwa said the ICC is unjust. African leader to court with Kenyatta, Uhuru Kenyatta, in Kenya and his deputy, they have been unanimously elected by the people of Kenya as their leader. But uh, this is stupid, the ICC, we want to drag him uh, to the court. So I believe that uh, the uh, African leaders, they will stand up and, uh, and, and, uh, and stamp their authority that we're a continent, we're a people, we, we must determine our own destination, not by the Europeans. After all, history tells us that uh, these same people, these whites, the Europeans, colonized Africa. So we must be independent, sovereign, and retain our dignity as a nation. Cause for a review of the relationship between the ICC and the African nations intensified following the prosecution of sitting African presidents. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto were charged of crimes against humanity during the bloody 2007 elections. The ICC also issued a warrant of arrest of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashar in 2009 over alleged war crimes in the Darfur region, but he is yet to be arrested. Thomas Lubanga Jilo from the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC was the first ever to be convicted by the ICC. He founded and led the Union of Congolese Patriots, UPC, and was a key player in the civil war between 1999 and 2007. Meanwhile, the Zimbabwean Justice Minister says ICC is biased. Uh, we did sign uh, the ICC protocol uh, in Rome, but we have not domesticated it. So we have not ratified that protocol. However, we now realize that uh, that instrument is being used against African leaders uh, more than it is being used against the cowboys like George Bush, Tony Blair. George Bush went to Iraq on the pretext that uh, they were arms of mass destruction. And yet, I don't believe that uh, FBI and CIA did not know that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But uh, they wrote in that false pretense and uh, they hanged Saddam Hussein of Iraq. The ICC is bent on humiliating the smaller countries if any little incident in Africa happens by dragging to court African leaders over small matters. Mnangagwa, a survivor of a death penalty during the liberation war struggle of Zimbabwe, is against death penalty and punitive punishment against humanity. He spoke on the need for Africans to unite against the ICC. So I believe that um, 
the lifespan of the ICC has now told us in Africa that it is not playing fair. There is no playing uh, uh, field for uh, the international community with regard to who goes there and who doesn't go there. So we, of, uh, uh, we uh, as a nation would want to discuss with our colleagues, point out that this thing is biased against, uh, against Africa than the rest of the uh, international community. However, as the African Union leaders met, some organizations and individuals, including Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, started lobbying for countries not to withdraw from the ICC. Archbishop Tutu has an online petition titled, Who Will Stop the Next Genocide? The petition is addressed to South African President Jacob Zuma and his Nigerian counterpart Goodluck Jonathan, appealing to them to warn African leaders against leaving the ICC. Archbishop Tutu has called on people to add their names to the petition and intends to deliver the petition to the African leaders if the names reach one million. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Mochemwa. Leaders of South Africa's newest party, the Economic Freedom Fight, EFF, has appealed to the black youth of the country to join the party and unseat the ANC in next year's national elections. Julius Malema was speaking at the launch of the party in Marikana in the country's northwest province. Thousands of people attended the launch at the same time, at the same site, where police killed 34 protesting minors. Last year, Malema has launched a scathing attack on white people in South Africa and urged black people to find what he calls the EFF inside them. Has more. The EFF was formed after Malema's expulsion from the ANC. Malema has launched his party in the Rustenburg mining area as he targets mine workers to swell the ranks of his party. Malema's party has last week indicated that its old system goal to contest next year's general elections. This was after the party received its registration certificate from the Independent Electoral Commission. During his address, Malema reiterated his party's stance on the land. The landless people need land. They can't be landless in a country of their own birth. This is their land. They must not pay for it. You killed people when you took that land. That was the price we're ready to pay. Till today, you are refusing with the land. You are not ashamed for having stolen our land. You want us to come to you and kneel before you to ask for the land of our ancestors. We are not going to beg for our land. Malema has urged his party members in Gauteng to fight against the Etolim system. He says Etolim must be shown the stop sign. EFF in Gauteng, you are going to fight against Etol. If you allow the e-tolls to continue, you must know you have failed our people. None of you economic freedom fighters must buy an e-tag. Every day in your car, you must keep your red beret. When they want a, an e-tag, you must show them a red beret. The EFF leader told thousands of party supporters that his newly launched party will form alliance with other organizations that agree with them. 
he has taken another swipe at white South Africans. We are not going to form alliances with opportunistic organizations. We are going to form alliances with fighting forces. If you want to work with EFF, the first thing you must accept is that you must not be scared of a white person. You must be ready to confront a white person everywhere. Even when there is no Malema there, you must be Malema of that factory. This abuse by white people must come to an end. UDM leader Bante Holomisa was among the dignitaries that attended the EFF launch. In his address to the crowd, Holomisa said this was a perfect time for EFF to launch, as the country's opposition parties are facing their own embattlements. You are, however, fortunate in that you are launching your party at an opportune time when the ruling party, which in the past impeded our efforts to bolster opposition politics in South Africa, is imploding. Political infighting in the ruling alliance has in many parts of the country derailed even the service delivery. Some of the EFF supporters had this to say after the launch. We see a bright future here. Initially we were lied to from the onset by the ruling party. But looking into EFF's policy, it's heading the right direction. After a long struggle, we can see where we are going with EFF. We had a bad history, but corrective measures are here in this party. Eight cows were slaughtered for the launching ceremony. Something the party says marks the entry of the EFF into South African political landscape. Dal Khaitsewe, Marigana. Human Rights Watch says the United Nations Security Council should impose an arms embargo on groups on all sides in the Syrian conflict against whom there is credible evidence of widespread or systematic abuses of crimes against humanity. The rights organization is also urging the Security Council to promote justice for the victims of abuse by all sides by referring to the situation in Syria to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. More from Human Rights Watch researcher Fred Abrams. This was a major operation that was coordinated and planned by about 20 different opposition groups, and they swept into a series of villages inhabited by Alawites, of course, the group of President Assad, and the conduct was atrocious. We've documented killings, we've documented hostage-taking, and we've identified five of the groups that were present when most of the abuses took place, that were participated, and even have bragged about execution, some of them, in their YouTube videos. So it's very important to document these violations and inform the public and apply pressure on the groups that are endangering, attacking civilians in the conflict. Fred, if I may ask, this is a somewhat different scenario then, because when one talks about the civil war in Syria, I think more often the sympathy lies on the so-called opposition forces, the Free Syrian Army and all the groups that make up this and the finger is pointed again more than often at the government for committing atrocities against civilians. So in this instance it was committed by the very same opposition that are fighting for their liberation. Two points I want to make. The first is that the opposition is a very diverse and varied group with domestic Syrian fighters, uh, foreign fighters, 
many different objectives, and we've identified five groups that were responsible for these abuses, and that doesn't mean that the other groups were. So I want to differentiate and not paint all of the opposition forces with one stroke. And the second point is that we have documented extensive, repeated, and excessive violations, war crimes, and crimes against humanity by the Syrian government. And the conduct of these five groups in Latakia we've documented in the report in no way justifies the violation by the government side. So our job is to call out abusers wherever they are and whoever and whatever side they are on, and that's what we're doing here today. Are there still many instances where, again, the so-called opposition are guilty of massive crimes? This was a very serious one, at least 190 civilians killed. Are there similar instances um, still happening as we speak now, later in 2013? Well, this is the single most serious incident that we've documented, but it is certainly not the only one we've documented. There have been other cases of killings and abductions by various armed groups. That's why one of our main calls is for the Security Council of the United Nations to refer the situation in Syria, the conflict in Syria, to the International Criminal Court. Because this court has a mandate to investigate and prosecute crimes by all sides. And it would, you know, there's a blindfold on justice so that where crimes are committed, it would be investigated and prosecuted. We think this can help to protect civilians. That's the main point. These Syrians that are stuck in the middle and are suffering from this conflict now more than 100,000 dead. If you can take us back to the events then in Latakia in August, when this incident happened and clearly the news of what happened became known, what kind of reaction came from the, in brackets, guilty partners, the opposition, about what happened in Latakia? What did they say about this? Well, the opposition is clearly, you know, not happy with the report. You know, they point the finger at the Assad government, which is also true. None of this information in the report is supposed to hide the crimes of the Syrian government in this war. But until now, no one has challenged the facts of the report and said that we got it wrong. You know, they don't like the implications of it. They don't like the politics or how it will be used by political actors. But we haven't seen any factual contradictions or complaints about the findings. And in the course of the investigation into what happened, what kind of reaction came from civilians? who obviously must have been very surprised about which direction this attack came from. What did people in general say about the incident? Well, look, for the most part, people are terrorized, they're horrified, they're traumatized. And that's why there has to be much more attention on finding a solution to this conflict, because in today's day and age, to have 100,000 dead and 2 million plus refugees is really an insult to the international system. It's an insult to the Security Council if they're not able to address and resolve a conflict of this magnitude. And civilians feel desperate. That I can say very clearly. They're squeezed from both sides. Even humanitarian aid is not being delivered to many areas, a fundamental and basic principle in war that the parties let humanitarian aid through. And that's why, you know, we hope that uh, this report and other work will re-energize the international efforts to resolve this conflict. 
That's what Fred Abrahams of Human Rights Watch on the line from Amsterdam in the Netherlands talking to Channel Africa's Chenin Kutze. Attempts to rebuild diplomatic relations between South Africa and France will get a new impetus when the left-leaning French President François Hollande visits the country today. The two countries had strained relations following their disagreement in finding solutions to the crises in both Ivory Coast and Libya, as well as who should lead the AU Commission with France, backing Gabonese diplomat Jean Ping. But with Hollande at the helm of the French government, relations are beginning to normalize with both countries now having seasons of culture aimed at strengthening the political, cultural and economic ties between the two nations. As Ndebo Mugobo reports, the French season was held in South Africa from June to November last year, while the South African season is currently underway in France until the end of this year. I haven't been here very long. It's been a month and a half. And uh, right now, I have to say the climate is very appreciable. It's great weather, uh, especially knowing that it's raining back home. I've been living here for two years now. I joined my husband because he loved the country so much. We just love the weather. The people are so welcoming, so nice. I arrived here three years ago. People are so welcoming. Uh, the weather is absolutely fantastic. Uh, having spent eight months in France last year and arriving here when it was sunny and just perfect. These are French nationals in South Africa dining at Bossam's restaurant in Johannesburg. Not only do they enjoy its delicious cuisine, they also enjoy the country and its beautiful weather. Perhaps an indication of relations that exist between South Africa and France. But away from the dining tables, serious issues will be on the table at the Union buildings when their President François Hollande and President Jacob Zuma meet later this morning. Hollande's visit to South Africa is his first as Socialist Party leader and as the French President. And this looks set to change its perception towards the continent. France has been accused of interfering in Africa's affairs with Ivory Coast and Libya still fresh in mind. But under Hollande's presidency, France's recent involvement in Mali had Africa's blessing. This followed consultation the French president had with African leaders including President Zuma. And research associated the South African Institute of International Affairs Tom Wheeler said this heralded a new era of cooperation on bilateral, regional and multilateral issues. I think that certainly made a difference. It was the start of perhaps a new era. I think uh, South Africa was quite happy for France to go into Mali, both because of that telephone call, but also because the the African states, the the ECOWAS uh, group of states from West Africa, were not able to mobilize quickly enough to deal with the Mali question, which needed very quick action. And the French were able to go in there quickly with South Africa's support. France's Pretoria strategic partner and bilateral relations between the two countries are coordinated through the annual Forum for Political Dialogue, co-chaired by Directors General of International Relations and Cooperation from both countries. International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabani said despite the economic downturn in the Eurozone, France remains South Africa's key partner in the European Union. France is South Africa's third largest trading and investment partner within the European Union and a number of French uh, public and private uh, sector companies have made significant investments in South Africa. Between 2004 and 2012, investments worth more than 15 billion rands by French companies were recorded, creating a significant number of uh, job opportunities in our country. A highlight of the visit 
is South Africa France Business Forum that will afford their respective business communities an opportunity to take advantage of the growing bilateral economic and explore further opportunities. But relations are not only limited to economic trade and investment. Minister Nkwana Mashabane said the movement of people between the two countries is contributing to cultural exchange between the two nations. Tourism flows from France to South Africa grow and continues to grow with an increase of more than 16%. The South Africa Francisms of Culture, which is currently ongoing in France, presents further prospects for growth in the tourism sector. Those who had an opportunity to participate this says that it's a roaring success. During the course of his visit, Olan will sign a number of agreements and declarations of intent in different areas of cooperation, signaling expansion in the bilateral relationship with the aim to spare cooperation in the areas of energy, agriculture and transport infrastructure. Ntebumokob of Pretoria. It's time for economic news with Wissane Makobel. It's your headlines, correction, it's your headlines with Wissane Makobel. Thanks, good morning. South African President Jacob Zuma defends the AU's decision that no sitting African head of state should appear before the International Criminal Court. The family of deposed Islamist President Mohamed Morsi says he will not enter any negotiations or accept any compromises following a crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood by military-backed authorities. And South Africa and France will move to rebuild previously strained relations when visiting French President François Hollande meets President Jacob Zuma in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, today. A full update in 30 minutes. Thank you, Isani. The news that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons has won the coveted Norwegian Nobel Peace Prize, surprised no one more than the organization itself, says a former inspection team leader of the OPCW, Henry Arvidsson who attended a hastily organized press conference at its headquarters in The Hague on Friday. Lili N. Struobach has more from the Netherlands. With the destruction of chemical weapons getting underway in Syria last week, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons that is overseeing the operation has been much in the news recently. Nevertheless, it seems to have been caught totally unawares when the good news broke on Friday. Former inspection team leader Henry Arvidsson says the morale of his colleagues in the field has received a huge boost and that the news came at just the right time as the inspection teams engaged in one of the most challenging operations. Well, it puts them on the map, of course, and it puts them also in focus and, and maybe some more scrutiny, which I think is, is, is a very good thing because I think this is, this is an underrated treaty under which OPCW works. It's the first treaty in the world that most nations in the, in the world are signed up to that is actually banning one entire class of weapons of mass destruction. What is it about the members of the teams that motivates them to, to, to run the risks they do? What kind of men and women are they? I think it's people who believe, really believe in the cause, believe in the greater good, that there is something bigger than themselves, that they're willing to go out and, and do that. Of course, they protect themselves, and they're, they're doing it in a very professional manner. You don't go out and take chances with your life, but you protect yourself and you mitigate the risks to the greatest possible extent. 
Now, the Syrian operation is the first one that's been carried out in an area of conflict, um, civil war. It is indeed. Uh, there has been, uh, I wouldn't say a close call, but the, the closest we've been in the past was probably in Libya in 2003. But Syria is certainly a different case. And, and yes, it adds an extra layer of, of security aspects to it, which UN is actually running those security operations so that the OPCW technical experts can work under the UN umbrella and under the UN protection to the greatest possible extent. Henry, you attended the, the press conference. What were some of your impressions? Well, I was surprised, and I think there was also a, a big thing for the city of The Hague. The city of peace and justice actually get a peace prize. That is, in itself is quite significant, I think, which puts uh, you know, the, the international organizations that work here in, on the map to a greater extent, which I think is great. Uh, the other thing that stood out was the question that was asked of the Director General whether or not he was happy, and he didn't answer the question. He has put on a very large smile. Henry, we're talking about close on a million euros or dollars. What will the OPCW be doing with this money? With an organization with a budget of approximately $100 million, um, they will always certainly fit in, and especially this operation in Syria, which is funded by, by um, voluntary contributions. It's a very expensive operation because of the security envelope and you know, the special, specific circumstances. So I'm sure there will be plenty of holes to put the money in, and hopefully they will be spent on the staff in, in, in so much as procuring new equipment to make them safer in their job. Former team leader Henry Arvidsson. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strober, reporting from The Hague. A powerful delegation from South Africa has concluded a three-day visit to South Sudan where the issue of good governance featured prominently between the visitors and their hosts. James Shimanyula reports. The visit by senior officials of South Africa's African National Congress, ANC, to South Sudan came less than three months after the East African country marked two years since it became Africa's 54th newest independent nation. The visit also came at a time when the international community accused South Sudan of failing to protect its citizens from attacks by members of several rebel groups. Likewise, the visit came at a time when South Sudan is yet to deliver basic services to its people, such as water, electricity, and health services. It may be important to point out that Juba and Pretoria have already signed a memorandum of understanding aimed at educating officials of the ruling party Sudan People's Liberation Movement, SPLM, on good governance. Shortly after holding crucial talks with NC officials, SPLM Deputy Secretary General Anne Ito spoke briefly about what her party intends to do in the days to come. We will be doing to see how well we have done in this independent South Sudan to make that relationship stronger but also uh, to forge forward in building democratic accountable governments in the two Nations. Speaking on behalf of the ANC delegation, ANC Vice Chairman Sirli Ramaphosa flashed back to the days when both countries fought hard for independence. The people of South Africa, 20 years after our own freedom, that they continue to benefit from the freedom that the African National Congress, which was actively supported by the SPLM, we still continue to struggle to make sure our people do benefit from the fruits of freedom of being truly 
prosperous. Echoing the same sentiment, but in a rather different perspective, Anne Ito, the SPLM Deputy Secretary General, said. They've seen us through the struggle, through the implementation of the CPA, and through independence, and the relationship is only getting stronger. That was Anne Ito, the SPLM, South Sudan's ruling party, Deputy Secretary General, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The 2013 International Day for Disaster Reduction recognizes the critical role of persons with disabilities in fostering disaster resilience. Persons living with disabilities are among the most excluded in society and their plight is magnified when a disaster strikes. The theme of the 2013 International Day for Disaster Reduction is Living with Disability and Disasters. In this interview, UN Radio's Don Bob asked the head of the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, Margareta Wallström, why such a theme? It boils down to a very unfortunate fact that it's good evidence now from many countries in the world that people with disabilities die in higher number in disasters. And I don't think we should accept that as a fact. In countries where we have the technology, the awareness, the understanding on how to engage with all parts of society to protect them better. Recently there was a UN Global Survey on the same topic. What was the outcome of that survey? Well, that survey has been out now for a couple of months, but it clearly shows that people who are disabled, and you know, disability has a large scope of variety, but that they are not informed about the emergency procedures in the near environment, that many times communications and information is not adapted to really reach people. For example, if you're deaf, you don't hear warning signals, very concrete. Evacuation is difficult for people with mobility limitations or wheelchair-bound. So people are not involved in designing the systems that are supposed to save their lives. And that, of course, limits how well the systems are designed to do that. What is UNISDR doing to try and improve this? Given our role as an advocate for prevention and better preparedness, We've taken up this issue to really do it as an advocacy role to mobilize, of course, many of the organizations that already work with disability, but that's not enough. This is a social issue for everyone. So it's raise awareness, it's engage government institutions, research institutions, and people themselves to engage more. I've met people with disability who say that the problem is also on our side. We don't engage with society as much as we should. So that isolation makes inclusion also complicated. So the call is for inclusion to ensure that when you plan emergency planning, when you plan a new area, do involve people with disabilities. I want to go back to a conversation we had earlier this year. That time we spoke at length about the Hyogo Framework Convention. How much progress has been made now? There was a big meeting subsequently since we spoke. 
Yes, well, as you know, we are working for the 2015 updating of the yoga framework for action. The consultations that we have now been running for one year are yielding very clear messages. And the messages are that the post-2015 version needs to build on the previous one because it's not a finished job. But it also needs to address issues like what are the really big risk areas what is it that undermines countries' development aspirations? What's the economics of disasters? Who pays for disasters? They also say it needs to be succinct, setting clear aspirations, it needs to be action-oriented, and it needs to build on progress already, and it needs to mobilize all parts of society. Uh, governments and countries paying attention and making sure that they're prepared in the event of a disaster. Lots of progress, there's no doubt about that, if you can see a, a very different attitude to this whole area. How successful it is, I think we can see a, a very, very worrying trend of an increase of disaster events and economic losses increasing, and particularly in fast-growing economies. And this means that the growth of the economy also follows the growth of risk. And that's why, you know, in many countries with fast-growing economies, the institutions are not very strong yet. So issues like how do you set priority, who controls the quality of all the infrastructure that is going on, who controls the use of land in exposed areas, and who actually sets the standards for the economic perspectives on growth and for the social responsibilities that follow. How do you tackle corruption, inability to follow up on national legislation and national codes? These are, in fact, the big issues right now that do not really have a very clear answer. And I think some of the issues that hold people back. But I also think the attitude and approach of many governments is that I, as a government, take care of you, just wait doesn't work, not necessarily because of bad will, but because governments you know, have enormous fiscal constraints and they have an inability to care for people all the time. So I think also as citizens we need to take a stronger role ourselves in you know, asking for safety, but also ensuring that we contribute to our own safety. That is Head of UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, Margareta Wallström, talking to UN Radio's Don Bob. It's your economic news with the other Wisani, Wisani Matabula. Thanks to Pumelele, South Africa and France will look to boost their trade and investment during talks between President Jacob Zuma and his French counterpart, François Hollande, in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, this morning. Several bilateral agreements and declarations of intent are expected to be signed in different areas. South Africa's International Relations Minister, Maite Nguanamashabana, says despite the economic downturn in the Eurozone, France remains South Africa's key partner in the European Union. 
France is South Africa's third largest trading and investment partner within the European Union, and a number of French uh, public and private uh, sector companies have made significant investments in South Africa. Between 2004 and 2012, investments worth more than 15 billion rands by French companies were recorded, creating a significant number of uh, job opportunities in our country. A highlight of the visit is South Africa-France Business Forum that will afford their respective business communities an opportunity to take advantage of the growing bilateral economic and explore further opportunities. Meanwhile, South African Finance Minister Pravin Godane has again expressed concern about the turn of sentiment against emerging markets, saying South Africa's economic fundamentals remain sound. Godane was commenting after being named Finance Minister of the Year in 2013 in Sub-Saharan Africa by the Emerging Markets website. The website citation says Godane has generally been praised by analysts for his handling of fallout from the 2008 global financial crisis. Godane has been speaking in Washington, D.C. in the U.S where he's been attending World Bank and IMF meetings. Libya is currently producing 700,000 barrels of oil per day as it tries to end protests that have shut down oil fields and ports. A mix of striking workers, militia and political activists knocked the OPEC members' oil production as low as 200,000 barrels per day last month from 1.6 million barrels per day before former President Muammar Gaddafi was ousted in 2011. Libya took its first steps towards a resuming output in the West in mid-September after reaching a deal with some protesters. The international status of women in the workplace is once again being debated, discussed and dissected. An IMF report suggests that the labor markets the world over are still divided along gender lines with women who are still in the majority of workers in unpaid jobs or the informal sector. Women are also being paid less than their male counterparts and in many countries women are withheld from working in senior and executive positions. The principal consultant at MindCore, Portia Moyo, says uh, when women manage their companies, they perform better. Various studies have shown that the more women are representative in the workplace, and this is particularly at um, senior management level, exec levels and board level, the better that companies perform. So it actually makes business sense for women um, voices to be heard. It's also a fact that women smack up a decision in terms of household goods, etc. So they are, in terms of consumers, they're actually the most powerful voice. So it actually makes sense for companies to actually have them, particularly at board representation, and it actually then benefits from organizations. Meanwhile, a resolution to do away with child labor worldwide has taken has been taken at the third global conference on child labor in Brazil. South African Labor Minister Mildred Oliphant attended the conference hosted by the International Labor Organization. Oliphant says child labor is not a real problem in South Africa, but occurs more often in other African countries such as Uganda and Ghana. There was a resolution that was taken that says by 2016 we need to really do away with child labor. And then we took it from there. We made commitments that we were going to come up with the legislation that deals with the eradication of child labor. But also there is a legislation that is administered by the Department of Justice that deals with the child trafficking. Some commodities news now called as propelled by rising news in China 
And uh, in India, will surpass oil as the key fuel for the global economy by 2020, despite government efforts to reduce carbon emissions. This according to research done by U.S. consultancy firm Wood Mackenzie. Global coal consumption is expected to rise by 25% by the end of the decade to 4,500 million tons of oil equivalent. The two Asian powerhouses will need the comparatively cheaper fuel to power their economies while demand in the United States, Europe and the rest of Africa will hold steady. Financial indicators, the dollar still at 9.86 South African rands at 8.34 Botswana Pulas and 5.23 Zambian Kwachas. Um, looking at uh, the European uh, currencies, uh, it's also trading at 0.62 to the British pound and uh, 0.73 to the euro. Commodities, platinum $1,365.74, gold $1,265.51 a fine ounce. The price of Brent crude oil $111 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Here's Figile Lingwati, here's your sport. Now, sports update this hour is starting off with cricket news. Proteus' most experienced test campaigner Jacques is ready to take the field after a long break in the upcoming series against Pakistan starting in Abu Dhabi this morning. Kalis has been out of action since February this year and expressed his excitement and mental freshness ahead of the series. Proteus have won eight and drawn three test series since losing away to Sri Lanka in 2006 with one of the draws coming against Pakistan in the United Arab Emirates three years ago. Fit again is also South African captain Graham Smith, who says their goal is to put Pakistan under pressure. Proteus coach Russell Domingo says they would like to put their preparations into action. So we've touched base and uh, just re-emphasize the important elements that's made this test side so successful and we want to try and continually um, execute those aspects of the preparation, conditioning, execution that we have done over the last period of time. I think they're a mature bunch of cricketers, they've been around for a while, they've all got good connections, they've played with each other over a period of time, so I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a major factor, um, but it's something that we need to make sure we do. In athletics, Ethiopia's Gezashig Huduna Gemeda has won the last leg of the Spa Women's 10km Challenge race at the Wanderers in Johannesburg on Sunday. Gemeda crossed the line in 33 minutes and 49 seconds. Rene Kalma grabbed second place in 34.31, while Rutendo Nyahura finished 69 seconds later to clinch third. Michael Flesmas reports. Ethiopia's Geza Shai Gemeda surprised South Africa's top 10-kilometer athletes when she won the Spa Women's 10-kilometer race in Johannesburg on Sunday. Running a tough course for the last race on this year's Spa Women's 10-kilometer series, Gemeda won in a time of 33 minutes and 49 seconds. South Africa's Renee Kalmer finished second one minute and 22 seconds behind her, but was happy to come through her race injury-free. Um, I'm really um, grateful that I could end the Spa race on a high level. South Africa's Mapaseka Makanya was crowned the top athlete of the series after winning the overall Spa Grand Prix title. Michael Flismas, Johannesburg.
And on to football news, Nigeria's national team striker Emmanuel Emunike scored twice to give the African champions an advantage to book a place in the upcoming Brazil FIFA World Cup in 2014. Emunike is now the hero for Nigeria as he helped the Super Eagles secure a vital 2-1 away victory of the Whalier Antelopes of Ethiopia. Meanwhile, the Elephants of Ivory Coast took a step towards qualifying for next year's FIFA World Cup after romping to a 3-1 victory over Senegal in the first leg final World Cup playoff on Saturday in Abidjan. Tunisia and Cameroon played to a goalless draw in the playoff first leg game qualifying for the World Cup 2014 in Brazil in Tunis. Aristide Banse converted a disputed late penalty to give Burkina Faso a 3-2 home victory over Algeria Saturday in the first leg of the World Cup Africa playoff. And lastly, South Africa's Charles Schwartzel won the China Masters at the and then we at the weekend rather, and closing with a four under sixty-eight for a one-stroke victory over Darren Clark and twenty twelve winner Liang Wenchong. Schwartzel, the twenty eleven Masters winner, had a nine under par twenty two hundred and seventy-nine total on Nashan International's Montgomery course. He earned hundred and eighty thousand US dollars in the one Asia tour event. Clark and Liang shot seventy-two. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping your top stories. The AU urges the ICC to suspend cases against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. French President Francois Hollande begins his state visit to South Africa. In economics, Libya's oil output increases to 700 barrels per day. And in sport, South African national cricket team take on Pakistan today. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you very much for listening. For any comments about our show, send us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za, or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, PO Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You could also send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine on the frequency 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa is Puse Kemisi with Imbis.